Last summer, my 91-year-old mother was living in her own apartment. She was on some medications, and she had a few issues with her back, so that she had some assistance from her senior apartment complex. But by and large, she was independent and in charge of her own life. All that changed in late August when her vertebrae cracked and the doctors were unable to fix the problem. We visited her in the hospital over Labor Day and found her in constant pain, alternating with periods of drug stupor. She was angry. She refused to cooperate with physical therapists. She was convinced that no one could help her. One thing was clear. She would never go home to her own apartment again. Her independence and her autonomy were gone forever. The hospital stopped any attempts to rehabilitate her due to her lack of cooperation. During the next few weeks, she was moved to a nursing home 100 miles away. Most of her earthly goods were sold at auction. She never returned to say goodbye to her friends at the apartment complex. In her new place, she refused to eat and seemed to forget from day to day that anyone had ever come to visit her. The nursing staff found her unresponsive to most things they tried, labeling her depression failure to thrive. When we visited her in October, she spent more than an hour the night we left repeating over and over again that she wanted to die and that she wanted us to let her go. After that weekend, my sisters and I decided to enroll her in a hospice program. I called my mother before Thanksgiving. I thought I was talking to a different person. Doctors seemed to have found the right balance of medication so that she was no longer in such severe pain, and she was lucid as well. She had had a visit from her granddaughter with a new baby, and it had a five-generation picture taken that was posted on Facebook, or facelift, as she calls it. <laughs> Regular visits from the hospice social worker, minister, and music therapist had lifted her spirits. She was eating actually had gained some weight. She told me about a game that the residents played every morning, kicking around a beach ball, which she actually told me was fun. When I had least expected it, from out of nowhere, joy had broken through. The third Sunday in Advent is called Gaudete Sunday on the liturgical calendar, the Sunday of joy. Originally, you see, Advent was like Lent, the season of fasting required penitential acts in preparation for the Feast of Christmas, and Joy Sunday was established as a break from the fasting to remind us of the joy we should feel at the nearness of Christ's coming. But the rest of the time, as the old Advent hymn goes, we were like captive Israel, supposed to wait in lonely exile until our Redeemer appeared. The lectionary reading from James connects this waiting to the early Christians waiting for the second coming of Christ, something we still need to be patient about. The Old Testament lesson this morning is about what happens when redemption comes. It is full of joy, the joy of the redeemed captives returning from Babylon after being set free at last, the joy of their release from captivity, which delivers even the most unfortunate among them, the blind, the deaf, the disabled, from their constrictions and makes their journey to Zion a celebration. How wonderful it would be if we could feel this kind of joy perpetually in our lives. The problem is that joy in this world is so very transient. I don't expect my mother's state of joy to last for the rest of her life, however brief that turns out to be. To 
Two centuries ago, the poet John Keats wrote that joy's hand is ever at his lips, bidding adieu. But the scriptures suggest that we ought to have an expectation of a more lasting joy. Thomas Aquinas talks about two kinds of joy. Joy, he says, is linked with desire, so that as long as we are in this world, the movement of desire does not cease in us, because we do not have all that we desire. When we enter eternity, the perfect happiness has been attained. Nothing will remain to be desired. Hence, desire will be at rest, not only our desire for God, but all our desires, so that the joy of the blessed is full to perfection, Aquinas says. This is what Matthew is talking about in his depiction of the last judgment in this 25th chapter. When he has Christ tell those who have performed corporal acts of mercy, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting prisoners and the infirm, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. It might even be argued that in rejoicing in their charitable acts of mercy and love, the redeemed create for themselves a taste of that coming eternal joy. But this eternal joy is not the same as the joy of deliverance from bondage in this world expressed by the redeemed in Isaiah. Or Christ's announcement to imprisoned John of the joy at the coming of the kingdom of heaven into this world not the next. In the gospel lesson, John the Baptist, from his prison cell, sends to Jesus to ask if he is the expected one, the Messiah. Christ's answer is a direct allusion to the passage from Isaiah, a passage which had come to be read by some to have messianic implications. One of Matthew's particular concerns throughout his gospel is to demonstrate that the Jewish scriptures are meticulously fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And this passage fits into that design. Christ does not directly answer John's question, but his invoking of Isaiah is a clear message that what Matthew calls the kingdom of heaven has come. It has come among us. It is here and now. And so, as with the redeemed in Isaiah, it is time to rejoice. Christ's message to John is simple. Have joy. The kingdom has come. But hold on, I'm thinking as I'm reading this. John is still confined in prison. If Jesus heals the blind and cures the lame, why doesn't he set this prisoner free? John is still trapped in his cell, and he's about to face execution at Herod's hands. What kind of joyful celebration is he going to have at the good news of the kingdom? But the kingdom is here, and therefore joy is here. Not eternal joy, as John is certainly aware and not the joy of his own physical deliverance, but a communal joy of deliverance like that in Isaiah that John can take part in. The gospel never gives us John's reaction to Christ's answer, but the allusion to Isaiah suggests that John rejoiced in the news. If joy is the satisfaction of our desires, we can never look forward to abiding joy in this world. My wife is not likely to buy me that BMW I've been wanting for Christmas. And I hate to announce it here, but the Manolo Blahnik patent leather Mary Janes she wants are also going to be absent from under the Christmas tree. <laughs> Sorry. Maybe the difference is that those desires are for things that can't bring us lasting joy. The world has not been made to conform to our desires. The world is intractable. Maybe what we need to do is refine our desires. Desire for the gifts of God will give us great joy when those gifts are received. 
the Baptist may well have desired to be delivered from prison, he was not. He ran into the intractability of Herod. But I think we should see that he desired more dearly the kingdom of heaven. And when Christ proclaimed to him that the kingdom had come, I think he delivered John, not from his cell, but within his cell, because he brought John the joy of his deepest desire fulfilled. Aquinas insists that joy is a virtue, one of the fruits of the Spirit that Paul describes in Galatians. Joy is indistinguishable from charity in Aquinas' theology. For Martin Luther, joy is a chief requirement of Christian community, the Isaiah-like communal joy of redemption. Christians must not be sharp and bitter, Luther says, but gentle, mild, courteous, fair-spoken, and as such as make others to delight in their company. As James says in his epistle, Beloved, do not grumble against one another, so that you may not be judged. For John Calvin, the beauty of God's creation makes it self-evident that God intends us for joy. The natural world is there not simply for human beings to use, but for us to find beauty in. Have done then, Calvin writes, with that inhuman philosophy which in allowing us no use of creatures but for necessity, not only maliciously deprives us of the lawful fruit of the divine beneficence, but cannot be realized without depriving man of all his senses and reducing him to a block. I think Calvin must have had dogs in mind. As fruits of divine beneficence and creatures that we love beyond their mere usefulness, they certainly bring joy with them. Thus, throughout history, Christian theologians have extolled joy as a virtue, an appropriate response to God's grace, and essentially a Christian obligation. As today's psalm opens, happy, one might say, joyful, are they who have the God of Jacob for their help, whose hope is in the name of their Lord. Flannery O'Connor, in my book, one of the great theologians of the 20th century, has a story called Good Country People, in which the protagonist, whose given name is Joy, has suffered a childhood accident in which she lost her leg. Now 32, with a PhD in philosophy, Joy is back home living with her mother, Mrs. Hopewell, in rural Georgia. Resentful and angry and convinced philosophically that there is no God and that life has no meaning, she has rejected her birth name and taken the name Hulga. One day a young Bible salesman, Manly Pointer, I swear I'm not making this up. <laughs> Visits the Hopewell house, and though he has no luck selling them a Bible, Mrs. Hopewell does invite him to dinner since she sees him as just good country people. Joy Hulga, however, decides to seduce the young salesman and with her superior intelligence undermine his simple Christian faith. She makes a date with him for the next evening during which he convinces her to climb into the hayloft of the barn. Once there, he convinces her to remove her prosthetic leg and then opens, out his hollowed out, opens up his hollowed-out Bible, which contains a bottle of whiskey, pornographic playing cards, and some condoms. Hulga, rejecting his advances, expresses surprise at learning that he is not just good country people and is left stranded and helpless when Manly steals her prosthetic leg and climbs down from the loft. In his last words to her, he snarls, You ain't so smart. I've been believing in nothing ever since I was born. How did Hulga get to this low point? 
More than anything, I would contend it is her rejection of joy. Her changing her name is just a formal rejection of the emotion itself. She has chosen to be angry, to be hostile, to be self-centered and unsympathetic. She has chosen to cut joy out of her life. She has chosen to be Hulga rather than joy. But some part of me understands and has a hard time blaming. Eternal joy is a condition we can have no direct experience of. And so it must remain for us hypothetical, a theoretical concept. We must deal in the real world, an intractable world that does not conform to our desires, a world replete with sickness, pain, poverty, injustice, hunger, war, disaster, the infirmities of age, the frustrations of imprisonment, the resentment of disability. How can joy be a permanent part of our lives in this intractable world? How can joy be joy and not Hulga? No one could expect Hulga to rejoice in her handicap, but the fact that she uses her extensive education to feed and twist her embittered soul rather than to engage in any meaningful acts of charity toward her fellow creatures, the fact that she considers herself a being of superior insight because, as she puts it, she sees through to nothing until the uneducated manly tells her he's been doing the same thing his whole life. These things destroy her life, and they are things she has willed upon herself. She has not found joy amid her infirmities, as my mother did. She has not found joy in God's kingdom even from prison, as John the Baptist did. She has found only the ugliness of Hulga. Our word grace is the English translation of the New Testament Greek word charis, which means that which brings joy, delight, or happiness. Joy, therefore, is not simply our human response to the bounteous gifts of God. Joy comes from and is part of grace, and as such is in itself a gift of God. The capacity for joy is given to us as our birthright, along with the capacity for various other emotions. We cannot control our initial instinctive reactions to the processes, benign or malignant, of this intractable world. But we are not programmed to act on any of those reactions. We have free will to choose what we do. And responding to the good with joy is making use of God's grace. We choose joy. As the ancient Buddhist proverb says, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. To reject joy is to reject one of God's greatest gifts. We cannot have all our desire in this world. We do have life, which is God's greatest gift. And living in joy, we can have abundant life. We can rejoice in one another. We can spread joy through love. We can give to the hungry, visit the sick and those in prison, clothe the naked, and give and receive joy by so doing, as those saved souls of Matthew's last judgment do. We can rejoice in family, in new grandchildren, or in my mother's case, in a new great-great-grandchild. We can delight in ice-covered trees and snowy days, what we call at our house, Kali weather. In the mountains, the sunsets, the stars, the waterfalls, the forests and the prairies, and all the beauty of God's creation, and say with Keats that a thing of beauty is a joy forever. With the birth of Christ, the kingdom of heaven becomes here and now, as the word is made flesh and dwells among us. If we accept citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, then the 
gift of joy is our birthright. Even in a hospital or a nursing home like my mother, or in prison like John the Baptist, or from a disability like O'Connor's Joy Hulga, we can join together and say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. 